You're listening to Martyrs and Missionaries. I'm Elise, and every episode I'll bring you a new martyr and or missionary, the called and the brave. In this episode, we're going to talk about Gladys Allward, the missionary to China who saved a hundred children. A couple of you recommended Gladys Allward, and I'm really glad that you did. I got her autobiography. It's called The Little Woman. I'll put the Amazon link in the description if you want it. Also, just in case you're wondering, I don't have an Amazon affiliate account. I probably show this often as I direct you guys there. But anyway, it's a short book, and I'm absolutely hooked. I'm about a third of the way through it, and it's just fascinating. I realized that in order to do her story justice, there's absolutely no way I can wrap it up in one episode. There's just so much there before she even gets to China. So we're going to have to break her story up into two parts. In the first part, we'll talk about her early life and journey to China. And then in part two, we'll talk about her life in China and all the incredible ways that God used her while she was there. A lot of times when you research people, you find a lot of sources that are like three or four times removed from the source material. And that makes things a little bit iffy as far as accuracy goes. And I want to give you guys the most accurate information available whenever it's possible. So I use autobiographies, journals, things like that. So these two episodes will be entirely sourced from her autobiography. Gladys Allward was born in London in 1902, and she wanted to be an actress. She was raised in a Christian home, but as she grew older, she thought that religion was kind of tedious. And she came from a working-class family, and a lot of working-class families didn't have a lot of options as far as employment went, and so a lot of them went into the service or basically worked as a maid for upper-class families. When she's a teenager, she goes to a Christian rally, and she doesn't really know why she goes. She just ends up there, but she becomes a believer while she's there, and she joins the Young Life campaign, which seems to have roots to the Young Life that some of you may be familiar with today. She's reading one of their magazines when she says, I read an article about China that made a terrific impression on me. To realize that millions of Chinese had never heard of Jesus Christ was to me a staggering thought, and I felt that sorely we ought to do something about it. So first, she says she talked with her Christian friends, and no one seemed very concerned. Then she thought that surely if she told her brother that he would go, because the desire for China burned so deeply in her heart that she needed to convince somebody, anybody, to go. And her brother laughed at her and told her that's an old maid's job, which is an interesting viewpoint since a 100 years earlier, missions was seen almost entirely as men's work. Then she thought, why should I try convincing others? Why don't I just go myself? So she tries to join China Inland Mission, and she goes to their preliminary training school for three months to see if she has what it takes, and they say she does not. They said her qualifications were too slight and her education was too limited to warrant her acceptance, and that the language would be far too difficult for her to learn. She said, I left that committee room in silence, all my plans and ruins. Looking back now, I can't blame them. I know if no one else does how stupid I must have seemed then. The fact that I learned not only to speak, but also to write and read the Chinese language like a native in later years is to me one of God's great miracles. She didn't know what God had for her, but she knew he had something for her. And it's understandable that she put away her dream of going to China. I mean, the prestigious CIM basically told her that she was not intelligent enough to go. But what's interesting about that is that most of the people that we admire today would not be considered intelligent or qualified enough. I mean, Charles Spurgeon, D.L. Moody, Amy Carmichael, Mary Slessor, the list is almost inexhaustible. And that's not to say that we shouldn't seek to be qualified, 
But it's certainly not the be-all, end-all, because if God wants to use you, he will. After she's rejected for missions work, she goes to Bristol to work with an older, lovely missionary couple. And she was struck by how much they had trusted God throughout their lives, not just in like an arbitrary, I trust God way, but in a tried and tested, God is real and close to me kind of way. They told her, God never lets you down. He sends you, guides you, and provides for you. Maybe he doesn't answer your prayers as you want them answered, but he does answer them. Remember that no is as much an answer as yes. After that, she moved to a new city where she began working as a rescue sister. Each night, she went down by the docks sharing the gospel with women and girls who worked there, and she went into the bars and literally pulled drunken women out and away from the sailors, bringing them to a hotel, and on Sunday, she would bring as many as she could to church. But still, she felt very strongly that God wanted her to go to China, and she just couldn't shake that feeling, so she took the train back to London to ask for some sound Christian advice. And everybody she asked told her to stop being ridiculous, just to knock it off with this China nonsense. You've got a great ministry going, just stick with that. She takes the train back, just utterly dejected and demoralized. And and I will say this isn't unique to her story. Many people who want to enter the ministry or want to push deeper into ministry have an uphill battle. They expect it from the world, but often it comes from other believers, which makes it all the more disheartening. She pulls out her Bible and commits to knowing it really, really well. She starts in Genesis 1, and pretty soon she's in Genesis 12. She reads God's call to Abraham. Go out from your country and from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. And this verse completely arrested her. Abraham left everything to follow God, and maybe he was asking her to do the same. She read more of Genesis and the faith of Abraham and Moses in particular, and she became convinced that God was calling her to go. If I wanted to go to China, God would take me there, but I would have to be willing to move and to give up what little comfort and security that I had. She heads back and takes every service gig she can possibly handle to save up money for passage. She's been working hard for a while, and so she goes down to the shipping offices to inquire about the price of a ship ticket to China, and the lowest price she can find is about 90 pounds, which is a lot of money for a maid to raise, no matter how hard she was working. The clerk tells her the cheapest way would be to take the train through Russia, and the train was about 47 pounds, which was much more reasonable. The clerk warned her against going, though, because there was fighting between the Russians and the Japanese going on in Manchuria, or northern China, over the new border since Japan had invaded Manchuria months earlier, and there was no guarantee she could even make it through. Gladys figured it would take her about three years to save up the money, but within a few months she had saved the entire amount and purchased her ticket. But now she needed to know where in China to go, and this may seem kind of backwards to us, like she did everything exactly in the wrong order. But in fact, she stepped out in faith, bought the ticket, and waited on God to provide the where and the with whom. She was working at a church event when she starts talking with a lady who is also interested in China. The lady knew someone who had been there for years, a woman named Jeannie Lawson from Scotland. She'd returned to England after her husband had died, but had recently returned, despite being in her 70s, to carry on the work. Miss Lawson had been praying for God to burden a young person to carry on the work which she would be unable to finish due to her age. Gladys wrote Miss Lawson about joining her, and Mrs. Lawson replied, stating that if she could get there, she'd meet her at the train station. She went back home to visit her family before she left. Her friend had saved up enough money to gift her a suitcase. Her mother sewed secret pockets into her coat and into an old corselet to house her tickets, passport, Bible, a fountain pen, and two traveler's checks worth one pound each. Another friend gave her an old fur coat, 
and everyone combined was able to outfit her with enough warm clothes to take with her. I'm also going to include what she kept in her suitcase, because it's kind of interesting to me, at least, to see what people brought with them when they were traveling thousands of miles away from home with no guarantee of return. She brought crackers, cookies, tins of corned beef, baked beans, fish, meat cubes, coffee essence, which is hyper-concentrated coffee for diluting with water, tea, and hard-boiled eggs. She also brought a little saucepan, a tea kettle, a bedroll, and a little burner stove. This was all she possessed in the world, and she said goodbye to her family and hopped on the train. Her trip to China through Russia literally reads like a suspenseful thriller. She leaves October 15, 1932. Shortly after boarding, she notices a nice couple, and the lady smiled at her and asked where she was going. China, she said. The couple was very surprised. She told them she wanted to be a missionary, and the lady just stares at her very intensely and said, My dear, I'm going to make a pact with you. Every day for as long as I live, I will pray for you each night at 9 p.m. Let me write my name in your Bible and you write yours in mine. If we never meet again on earth, we'll meet someday above. As the couple disembarked, the lady kissed her affectionately with tears in her eyes, and her husband took her hand and held it reverently and said, May the Lord bless you very richly and draw you ever near to him. She watched them go for as long as she could as the train pulled away from the station, feeling a deep connection to them even though they'd just met. When she could no longer see them, she looked down at her hand to realize that she was holding a one-pound note in her hand, a note which would very soon save her life. In a few days, the train began to pass through Russia, and her immediate reaction was how depressed it made her. Everyone looked haggard and dirty. They carried heavy loads, both physically and spiritually. Even the children, everyone just looked utterly unhappy. The days of travel were monotonous. Every day, the only exercise you experienced was walking up and down the train corridors. She welcomed each time the train had to stop to refill the wood for the engine. Everyone stepped out and stretched while the crew sawed up the wood. She was feeling very alone because she couldn't speak with anyone. Nobody spoke English, and she didn't speak any Russian. On the seventh day of her trip, she passed into Siberia. She marveled at how much snow there was. She didn't think it was possible for all the world to contain that much snow. It shone brilliantly against the tall green trees and the lofty mountains. She found it very difficult to keep warm, though, even inside the train. A few days later, she found a man who spoke a little English, and she learned through him that the train would not be able to take her all the way to Harbin because there was fighting at the front, and they would most likely not be able to push through. She became very anxious, thinking what would happen if she was stranded in the middle of Russia. Then she pushed the worries out of her head, thinking, I'm failing my God. He isn't thousands of miles away. He's right beside me. Why should I worry about my journey when God is helping me all the time? The next day, the train became packed with soldiers heading for the front. A railway official came over and began shouting at her and wildly waving his arms, and she couldn't understand a word that he said. Eventually, he gave up and wandered off. The train carried on the rest of the day, and then come evening, it stopped, and all the soldiers poured out, leaving her alone and small, sitting in the corner. She waited for about an hour and then stood up. Looking around, she quickly realized that the train was entirely empty. She walked out onto the platform and saw that it, too, was deserted, and it was so bitterly cold the wind whipped around her, blowing powdery snow into her face. She thought she might freeze to death. Suddenly, she heard gunfire pop wildly in the distance, and she realized in growing horror that she was at the front and the train would not be going any further. Inside the station was a small hut with four guards. They recognized her because they had tried to get her to leave the train early yesterday, back at the last stop. 
They told her the only way back was to walk, laughing as they mimed her carrying her bundles along the tracks. But that's exactly what she had to do. They gave her a hot cup of coffee and sent her off. I want to take a minute here to set the scene for you. It's almost November in Siberia. She has to walk the distance that took the train almost an entire day to traverse. She has no shelter from the elements or the wildlife. On either side of the tracks are tall banks of snow. She had to walk directly on the tracks, flanked on either side by tall, imposing forests of pine. She walked on until midnight, pulled herself off the tracks, and then moving herself closer to the forest, she ate stale crackers and boiled coffee. She settled on top of her suitcase and tried to sleep. Soon she heard a cacophony of howling and barking very close by. She was so tired and so cold, she thought, why would somebody let so many dogs out so late at night? It wasn't until later that she realized they were actually large packs of wolves. She rested for a bit but was too cold to sleep. She continued walking, taking short breaks until the next evening when she saw the platform and pulled herself up onto it, collapsing into a stupor. Nobody came near to help her, so several hours go by and eventually an official comes by to move her along, notices she's not responding, and takes her and all her belongings to a wretched, filthy room to hold her. They took everything from her but her Bible. She tried to hold it up to the light to read it, but wasn't able to make out the letters in the dim room. A torn page from a daily calendar fell out, and on it was written in big, bold letters so she could read it. Be not afraid of them. I am your God. She had no idea how or when it had gotten there. She knew that they could not harm her unless God allowed it. They interrogated her, wondering what she was doing in Russia. Her passport read missionary, but somehow they thought she had something to do with machinery, and tried to convince her to stay and work in Russia. In her Bible, they found a picture of her brother in a dress uniform for the army band, and that impressed them a lot. They thought that she was someone very important. They gave her a new visa and a ticket for the next leg of her trip. She was put on the train with instructions to change in a certain city to another city, and then on to Harbin, which would be the entry to China. She made the first switch with no problems, and as she sat on the platform, she saw a sight that she said she never forgot. Fifty men, women, and children chained together by the ankles and hands. They were being forced into a train to work the Siberian labor camps. Many of them were hysterical and in tears. She decided from that moment on that she hated communism with all of her being. She finds out that her connecting train route was blocked and she had to go to another city called the Vladivostok to catch another train which would hopefully take her to Harbin. The Vladivostok is a major port city in Russia which is near the border between China and North Korea. When she gets there, she has no idea what she's going to do, no idea how to get to Harbin. So she sits down and prays, and as she's praying, she remembers seeing this advertisement that said, See Russia through Intourist. Now, I looked this up because I was curious exactly what Intourist meant. Essentially, it was a campaign for Russia to bring foreign tourism and foreign currency into the country in order to boost their economy and world image. Tours were carefully organized and kept tourists away from anything that might not be prosperous or luxurious or went against the image Russia wanted to display to the world. I mean, basically, it was what North Korea does with its tourists today. Gladys took her new word and went around telling people she was an in-tourist until an interpreter took her to an office and from there to a hotel. He took her passport and said that it would have to be stamped. And he was very friendly at first, offering to show around town, but she found it so depressing. People standing in bread lines to receive black bread. The streets had no pavement and there were giant holes in the streets. He asked her why she wanted to leave. You have no money to buy tickets can't go to China. Stay here and help us. Now, I don't know about you, but I would be just chilled to the bone. I'll read this next part of their conversation. Why do you want to keep me? I asked. 
Why do you follow me around and watch my bedroom? We need people like you in this country, our new country, new civilization, a land free from the fetters of capitalism. No, I don't want to stay, I replied quickly. I have seen all I want to, thank you. All the dirt, the squalor, the bad roads, the thin, underfed women, the awful poverty. But we'll alter all of that. That's why we need people like you, men and women who know how to handle machines, who can work in factories and train our people. But I'm a missionary. I'm going to China. I don't know anything about machines. He looked at me so strangely that a cold chill ran over me. China is so far away. You will stay in Russia. We will look after you. She was petrified, but she didn't know what to do because she had no passport, no food, no money. She couldn't leave. She went for a walk by the seashore to calm down. Soon a young girl approached her and said she'd been waiting for the in-tourist man to leave so she could talk to her. She told Gladys that if she wanted to leave this place, she needed to do it now or she'd never get out. She refused to tell her who she was. Do as I say, the girl said. They have no intention of letting you go. She told her to gather her things and wait for an old man to knock on her door. Then follow him and don't ask questions. Gladys goes back to her hotel room, head pounding with anxiety. What if it was a trap? Who could she trust? At that moment, she heard a knock at the door. She opened it and there stood the in-tourist man with her passport in hand, but he refused to give it back to her. Suddenly, she grabbed it from him and threw it behind her into her room, saying, You're not coming in here. Why not, he asked. Because this is my bedroom. I'm the master. I can do with you what I wish. Oh, no, you can't. You may not believe in God, but he's here. Touch me and see. Between you and me, God has put a barrier. Go. He stared at her, then shivered, and without another word, turned and left. When she finally collected herself, she picked up her passport and saw that they had changed her profession from missionary to machinist. Early in the morning, there was a knock on her door. An old man offered to carry her suitcase and led her along the streets until they came to the docks. There was a little shack there. Suddenly, the girl appeared again and asked if Gladys had anything of value. She had nothing. All you can do, the girl told her, is throw yourself at the mercy of the captain in the shack. You must get on that boat at all costs. Inside, she found a Japanese captain. She threw herself on his mercy, gave him her passport, and pleaded with him to take her far away from there. He looked at her passport and noticed they had changed her profession. He told her that in order for him to save her, she had to sign some papers and become his prisoner. He could not legally take her otherwise. This was her only option because she had no money to buy passage. As she was going up the gangway, she was grabbed by Russian soldiers. She threw her belongings up on the ship and suddenly remembered that she had a one-pound note the couple had given her on the train. She pulled it from its hiding spot and held it aloft. See, I bought myself off, she yelled. She wrenched free of the Russian soldier's grasp, leaving part of her coat in his hands and rapidly boarded the ship. When they arrived in Japan, she was taken by the British consulate, having nothing but praise to the Japanese captain who had saved her life. The British officer who came to retrieve her told her she was the biggest fool he'd ever met. After almost a month and a few more train and boat trips, she finally arrived in China. She arrived in Tianjin, which is a port city located two hours east of Beijing, and there she met an assistant of Mrs. Lawson named Mr. Liu. They took a train to Beijing and from there took mules for two days to the mountains. She thought she'd be broken to pieces on the mules. The ride was so rough. When they finally arrived in Yangcheng, where Mrs. Lawson lived, she slid off the mule and tottered painfully to the old woman who now stood inside the gate. Gladys bowed. The old woman said, Who are you? I'm Gladys Allward, who wrote you from London. Oh yeah, 
Well, are you coming in? I hope you're enjoying Gladys' story so far. Next week, we'll finish the rest of it, but for now, I have to finish reading it. As always, thanks for listening to Martyrs and Missionaries. I'm Elise.